Coming up on today's episode of The Virtual Couch, I just finished recording it. I know, I just want you to listen to this one. I don't even know what I'm going to title it. I think it's going to be something like Stages of Life, Stages of Faith, Stages of Change. But this is something I've wanted to talk about for so long. I take James Fowler's Stages of Faith and I throw in there how that applies to Stages of Life and it leads to Stages of Change. Helping you become, I know this sounds so cheesy, but the person that you always wanted to be based on your values. Imagine what if in a world you're okay you're not broken. You have all the thoughts and feelings and, and emotions you have because you're a human being. You're not a robot. You're not a psychopath, but you are human and the only one of you that has ever walked the face of this earth. So that is why you feel the way you do. And that is going to lead to talking about these stages of faith, stages of life. I could do another hour here in this intro. So trust me, listen to this message, listen to this episode, that and so much more coming up on this episode of The Virtual Couch. Hey everybody, this is a very quick advertisement and I know I'm a podcast listener. You can hit the little fast forward button probably on your podcast player, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, but bear with me. I'll try to make this quick. As a therapist myself, I obviously recommend that everybody give therapy a try because when people ask me, do I need therapy? I don't even have to talk to you. The answer is yes, I need therapy. Everyone could use a sounding board. Everybody could use uh, an objective third party. Everybody could kind of dig deep a little bit and find out what are things that they've been holding back on? What are the things that they feel like they should be able to get over or shouldn't be worrying about? Shouldn't, shouldn't, nobody wants to be should on. But we're all hanging on to things that uh, would be helpful to process. And there's even things that we thought we'd achieve by now or things that we really want to achieve so that we won't have these regrets in life. And so if there are people listening right now that might be noticing that their anxiety or their depression might be getting a tiny bit worse, especially with what's going on in the world right now, let's get to it. Let's not leave that untreated. You owe it to yourself, to those around you, your spouse, your kids, you. I mean, you're the, you owe it to you at the very least to give therapy a try. So if you're nervous about finding the right fit, if you're worried about bumping into somebody in the therapy waiting room, if you have any worries about therapy, might I recommend that you go immediately to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash virtual couch, all one word. And just take a look at the world of online therapy. Go check out what over half a million, approaching a million people have already done before you and sign up now by going to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch and get the help that you need, the help that you maybe didn't even know that you need. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which might not be available in many areas. And especially right now with shelter in place, with social distancing, betterhelp.com is designed to do video therapy, telephone therapy. They even have uh, appointments that you can text. So the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account at any time and message your therapist and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus you can schedule these weekly video phone sessions, whatever it is. So you won't have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Although every time I do this ad, I do want to say that my waiting room is quite lovely. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Oftentimes you can start communicating in under 24 hours and the betterhelp.com assessment, the intake alone is brilliant. And they also work with, with all kinds of things. Acceptance and commitment therapy, one of my favorite techniques. Emotionally focused therapy. They work with anxiety, with OCD, with depression. 
So do yourself a favor, go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. You'll receive 10% off your first month's services. And, and I can't lie, obviously, if you're going to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, and this is the virtual couch podcast, it's going to help me out a little bit too. So go check it out. You'll receive 10% off your first month services. What are you waiting for? Just go check it out. Betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Try it today. Couch. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography recovery program that is helping people like you reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of pornography. If you or anybody that you know is struggling to put pornography behind you once and for all, and trust me, it can be done in a strength-based, hold the shame, become the person you always thought you could be way then join me at pathbackrecovery.com. There you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to put pornography in their rearview mirror once and for all. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And very quickly, you can go to tonyoverbay.com slash courses and find my very free, always free, continuing to be free, continuing to be downloaded and talked about and shared parenting program parenting uh, positively or positive parenting in the not so positive of times. And I, I highly encourage you to, to check that out. A lot of people are struggling a bit having the kids at home 24 seven. I know now for many school districts, it's officially summer, but that doesn't really mean a whole lot different than it has meant over the last eight, nine weeks of the global pandemic. So I, I highly encourage you to take this parenting course. It's based on Concepts from the Nurtured Heart Approach, which is a wonderful parenting program that is evidence-based and is a, it's a parenting program that changed the way that my wife and I parent. And so I highly encourage you to check that out again, tonyoverbay.com slash courses. And you can follow me on Instagram at Virtual Couch, at TikTok at Virtual Couch, also on Facebook at Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Um, sign up at uh, TonyOverbay.com to find out more about exciting new programs because I've been saying that for a couple of years, but boy, there's some exciting things on the horizon. I cannot wait to talk more about uh, some projects you're going to have to do with better relationships, better uh, couples, marriage, communication, all those sort of things. So you can find out more if you sign up at TonyOverbay.com. All right. Uh, I really, it, it, today marks a pretty important day as well. I've been at my new office for well over a year now, and uh, today is the first day that I did not wear a belt into the office. I know on previous podcasts, I would mention this, and there was a Walmart nearby, and I think I had bought, I think it was up to my fifth or sixth belt that I would run over and grab, but I'm not going to do it today. We're going to go with the shirt untucked. I'm going to be very vulnerable, very raw, very authentic. So if you are a client coming into my office today, that is, uh, that is why my, my shirt was untucked because I did not want to go purchase my 6th or 7th or 8th belt. So here's some very non-exciting behind-the-scenes insider info about recording the podcast. I don't write the title of the podcast or the show notes until after the episode has been recorded. And this is one, the reason I bring that up today is I'm not really sure what I'm going to call this episode, and I'm not sure how clever I'm going to be able to be in the, the show notes, but I, I hope you'll stay with me here for a little while. There's something that I get to talk about on a daily basis in my practice, and that is working with people that have experienced a bit of a faith crisis or a faith journey where they've had some experiences in their life that have caused them to maybe question 
then turn away from and then try to reestablish a relationship with their faith community. And it's based on, typically I use a lot of James Fowler's stages of faith work. And, and I know that this is a topic that people want to hear because when you go look at the data, the download data, there are certain episodes that I, I truly call evergreens that start over time to have thousands and thousands of more downloads than other episodes. And anything that I've done around stages of faith, faith crisis, faith journey, those are those episodes that are far and away the most downloaded. Those those and interviews uh, that I've done with Jennifer Finlayson Fife, who is a wonderful interview and who I am going to have again on the podcast soon. But stages of faith, that's what I'm here to talk about a little bit more today. But I'm going to take a little bit of a leap today. I'm not going to stay in stages of faith the entire time, although I want to talk about that. But I want to talk about stages of faith, and I'm also going to work in what I feel are stages of life. And, and I feel like these James Fowler stages of faith have a, a big correlation of stages of life and where somebody is in their life, where somebody is in moving slowly away from being the person that they think that they're supposed to be based on values or goals that people have told them that should be important. And again, nobody likes to be should on. And, and moving over to a point in life where one feels a bit more authentic. And, uh, and as a therapist, this is one of my biggest messages that I want to convey is the sooner we can get you to feeling like you're not broken, the sooner we can get you to feeling like um, you can, you are you because of all the experiences that you've had in life. No one else has had those experiences. The sooner we get you there, the sooner that you can kind of start to get rid of that what's wrong with me story that our brain likes to try to try to play out. And the sooner you can start living a little bit more by your own personal values and identifying what your own personal values are. And, and I promise you that's a very significant change that you can make in your life that will just lead to a lot of happiness. So I get to talk about it often again in this context of stages of faith, but stay with me here and we're going to talk about stages of life as well. So talking to stages of faith, I wanted to kind of just start in general. I went to goodolddictionary.com to give a definition of faith. What is faith? Most likely, I think a lot of people think of it in terms of a religious context. Even dictionary.com, the second definition it gives, says that faith is a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. So, depending on your religious community, faith can mean anything from, uh, you know, it's uh, not to have a perfect knowledge of things or having hope for things that aren't seen, which you believe to be true, and, and any kind of variation thereof, whatever whatever scripture you, you like to read or believe in. Um, a lot of times faith is going to have something along those lines. So, the first definition that dictionary.com gives of faith as well as complete trust or confidence in someone or something, and it gives a an example of, you know, this restores one's faith in politicians, which is a tiny bit maybe ironic based on a lot of the current, uh, current climate um, and a lot of the things I hear that people do bring into my office. And then if we go to good old Wikipedia, which of course is always true, and that is said with a, a heavy dose of sarcasm, but uh, faith talks about religious belief. It says this article is about religious belief, um, and it says for trust in people or other things, it's, it's interesting, it says see trust. Um, and for other types of faith, uh, it kind of has some links to some other areas as well. But it says that faith is derived from Latin, 
uh, feedies in old French, feed or fide, is confidence or trust in a person, thing, or concept. In the context of religion, one can define faith as a belief in God or in the doctrines or teachings of religion. And uh, Wikipedia goes on to say, religious people often think of faith as confidence based on a perceived degree of warrant, while others who are more skeptical of religion tend to think of faith as simply belief without evidence. And even in the Wikipedia article, then it moves on into... James Fowler, who had done some stages of faith and stages of faith development. And Fowler, as just a quick reminder, uh, was born in 1940, passed in 2015. But he proposed a series of, of stages of faith development or spiritual development that, that ranged across the human lifespan. And his stages relate closely to the works of psychologist Piaget or Erickson or Kohlberg, regarding aspects of psychological development in children and adults. And I think that's why it really resonated with me when I went to my first training that was trying to help people through faith crisis. And so Fowler defines faith as an activity of trusting, committing, and relating to the world based on a set of assumptions of how one is related to others and the world. And I think that's pretty significant. So let me go through now Fowler's stages of faith. And, and then I want to, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it than I maybe have in the past. And I want to throw into there how I believe this kind of relates to stages in one's life and where some of the hiccups or difficulties can be. And what do we do about those things? So, so Fowler says, so stages of faith, um, he talks about a, Pre-stage. This is even before stage one, and I haven't talked about this on other podcasts, but pre-stage, undifferentiated faith. Um, the time frame that you're looking at here is generally children from birth through about the age of two. And so, Fowler said that they have the potential for faith, but lack the ability to act on that potential. So, he says that through loving care from parents and other adults in their, their life, young children start to build a lived experience of trust courage, hope, and love. And he says at this stage, children experience faith as a connection between themselves and their caregiver. And I think this is pretty fascinating. If you look at attachment theory in general, I like to say that, you know, we're all born as these pink, squishy babies. We're not uh, rhinoceroses out in the wild that can go and kill uh, and and get our own food within an hour or so. We are attachment-based creatures and we have a desire to attach. We need other people for our survival. So, if you think about it in that regard, a lot of times it makes sense as to why we hold so dearly to these um, these faith connections with our caregivers. So, what they model uh, is going to be something that's kind of ingrained in us. So, if our if our parent or caregiver didn't necessarily embrace a particular faith tradition, then you can see how it might not be as significant or hold as much value to one. Um, I can be very open and vulnerable. I, mean, I didn't grow up with a, a very strong faith tradition. I would go to, I think, va- vacation Bible school on uh, in the summers, you know, in Tennessee when I would visit my grandparents. But I didn't necessarily wasn't a regular church goer, church attender. So it, that, this isn't something that necessarily was ingrained in me from uh, from the start. So stage one, intuitive and projective faith. That's what Fowler calls stage one. So he says that this is generally preschool age children. He says the cognitive development of children at this age is such that they are unable to think abstractly and are generally unable to see the world from anyone else's perspective. As Robert Keeley writes, these children cannot think like a scientist or consider logical arguments or think through complex ideas. Again, we're talking preschool age children, and this is stage one, intuitive and projective faith. So, he says that faith is not a thought out set of ideas, but instead a set of impressions that are largely gained from their parents 
or other significant adults in their lives. And this way, children become involved with the rituals of their religious community by experiencing them and learning from those around them. So, a lot of observation and intuitive and projective faith, there is a, there is a lot of, I, I pay particular attention to that concept of projective. Um, we're typically projecting our faith onto our children. So, in whether it's the series of rituals, whether it's going to church, whether it's what we do in the church pews. Um, I remember with my own kids, it's uh, I, I loved word searches of all things, and I think I'm sure that you know some of their um, their intuitive and projective faith experiences when they were young is sitting in a pew, um, having a piece of bread and a cup of water pass by, and then doing word searches until they can leave, and so. You know, that's the kind of faith or experience that was projected on them. So then it becomes something that feels a bit intuitive, that that's what we do to express our faith. There's a chart that I like to use in my sessions often, and this one clearly lays out stage one is intuitive and projective. And this is a stage of preschool children in which fantasy and reality often get mixed together. However, during this stage, our most basic ideas about God are usually picked up from our parents and or our society. And again, this is where I say that kids are typically playing with toys and parents say, hey, kids, there's a God. So, projecting upon them their faith. So, um, and I think as far as with stages of life goes, it's more of just that parents in general are projecting their their experiences onto their kids. Uh, their kids are somewhat soaking things up. They're a bit of a sponge. But I think it's also pretty interesting to note that uh, this quote by Robert Keeley, that these children cannot think like a scientist, consider logical arguments, that sort of thing, and uh, that they're generally unable to see the world from anyone else's perspective. I think a significant thing here, and this is why I was kind of excited to do this episode, but I know it's going to probably go all over the map, but I work a lot with personality disorders, and sometimes people want to say, are they are they born, you know, of nature or nurture with a personality disorder? And one strongly held belief or theory is that every every child is self-centered. You know, every child, as uh, as um, Fowler said, or is generally unable to see the world from anyone else's perspective. What the key difference is is most of us then, with support or attachment to parents or you know influential strong figures early on in our childhood, we make this gradual move from self-centered to self-confident or somewhere in between, some sort of spectrum or scale. So, oftentimes when there are attachment wounds or trauma young, the theory is that someone, a child, doesn't necessarily move from self-centered to any variety of self-confidence. And so, that self-centeredness stays, which is what can really appear to be or present as a personality disorder. You know, one of the interesting things about something like narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder is people say, do they know, do do narcissists know that they are gaslighting? Do they know that they are um, not taking accountability for things or ownership of things? And if you, if you kind of look at a personality disorder is the person is not going against any view that they, any, any negative sense of self or they don't feel they're doing anything that is contrary to their view of self or view of ego then this kind of makes a little bit of sense, right? So, those attachment wounds are there young or that attachment injury um, or that uh, the abandonment issues. And so, here's someone that moves forward in complete self-centered mode, which is oftentimes if you've had interactions with someone that struggles with narcissistic personality disorder or traits of narcissism, it can feel at times like you're arguing with a a 10 to 12-year-old boy. So, I think that one's kind of interesting too. So, now if we move into stage two, Fowler calls it mythic and literal faith. So, generally ages 6 to 12. So, he says that children at this age are able to start to work out the difference between verified facts and things that might be more fantasy or speculation. 
Uh, Fowler says, at this age, children's source of religious authority starts to expand past parents and trusted adults to others in their community, like teachers, like friends. And like the previous stage, faith is something to be experienced. At this stage, it is because children think in very concrete and literal ways. Again, we're looking at about 6 to 12 years old. So, faith becomes the stories told and the rituals practiced. Again, Fowler calls it mythic and literal. Later in this stage, children begin to have the capacity to understand that others might have different beliefs than them. But again, we're looking at this kind of ingrained um, ingrained belief, ingrained faith, uh, ingrained belief system. So, mythic and literal. When I look at the chart that I often refer to, it says in stage two, when children become school age, they start understanding the world in more logical ways, and they generally accept the stories told to them by their faith community, but tend to understand them in very literal ways. And then he goes on to say, and a very few people remain in this stage through adulthood. And I don't know why, but I always think of, I think it's Linny, or is it George, which one is the, the simpleton in Of Mice and Men, I would imagine stayed in the stage two faith, or basically, now let me make that correlation, into stage two of life. So, in that same six to 12-year-old mythic and literal faith kind of area, and, and again, back to the stages of faith, I like to say that mythic and literal faith sticks to 12. When I'm given just a very generic overview, I'll say that this is when uh, I call it the, the Easter Bunny, Tooth Fairy, Jesus, uh, Superman, Batman, all of them. All of them are mythic. All of them are literal. They're all real. So, at this stage, you can see that when Fowler talks about later in the stage, children have the capacity to understand that others might have different beliefs than them. And oftentimes, later in that stage, the stage two of life is when people start to realize and maybe plug the kids' ears for this one, um, uh, might challenge the idea of Santa Claus. You know, we'll kind of put it that way, right? So, so if you really look at it in that, that regard, there's a lot going on for somebody that's hitting that 9 to 12-year-old age range where a lot of the things that they've been told are mythic and literal, they start to recognize as not necessarily literal and maybe less mythic, but then there are other things in their faith community that they're trying to hold on to as still literal, you know, a literal belief. So, that stage two of life, again, it starts to become this awakening, but it's been based off of experiences that have been shared by parents, by faith community, by friends, that sort of thing. So, let's move on into stage three. This is when things get real, as the kids say. I don't know if they even say that anymore. Boy, talk about some behind-the-scenes insider podcast info. When you hit stop to take a drink, make sure you hit record um, before you go on a very long ramble. So, let's try this again. Um, Stage three, synthetic and conventional faith. And again, contrasting this with, let's call this stage three of life. So, stage three in Fowler's stages of faith generally starts about the age of 13 and goes until around 18. And he says, however, some people stay at this stage for their entire lives. And this isn't the of mice and men simpleton version. May, you know, people might stay in stage two. I find that a lot of people remain in stage three for most of their life. And we're going to continue to talk about that as this podcast kind of uh, develops. So, stage three, unlike previous stages, people at this stage are able to think abstractly. Um, what were once simple unrelated stories and rituals can now be seen as a more cohesive narrative about morals and values. That's so significant that, that the brain is starting to put together this narrative about values and morals. But with abstract thinking comes the ability to see layers of meaning in the stories or rituals or symbols of their faith. And at this stage, people start to have the ability to see things from someone else's perspective. So, this means that they can also imagine what others think about them and their faith. And people at this stage claim their faith as their own instead of just being what their family does. However, the faith that is claimed is usually still the faith of their family. 
And, uh, and I love the way Fowler puts this. Issues of religious authority are important to people at this stage. For younger adolescents, that authority still resides mostly with their parents and important adults. This might be um, leaders in their religious community. For older adolescents and adults in this stage, authority resides with friends and the religious community. But for all people in this stage, religious authority resides mostly outside of them personally. So they're still looking at religious leaders, pastors, bishops, authority figures to, to kind of help them understand what is expected of them. Or, you know, and again, in this, here's the way that things should, and I'm using that term very dramatically, should be. There's a key point here that Fowler talks about that back in the second paragraph, or might have been the first paragraph. No, here we go. Um, unlike in previous stages, people begin to think abstractly, and what were once simple, unrelated stories and rituals now seen as more of this cohesive narrative about values and morals. So people are starting to come into their own. They're starting to put together this narrative of values and morals. And, and again, they had their own, they're starting to really recognize their own experiences. And this is where I like to say those experiences can be a variety of things. And, and I say this, this uh, kind of blanket statement often, but you've got your nature and your nurture. You know, you have chemical issues of the brain, whether it's a good old, uh, my, my best friend, ADHD, or if you have some, uh, some, maybe some clinical depression, or if you have attachment issues, if there was abandonment as a child, you've got all these things that you're kind of bringing to the table. And now you're, you're starting to put together this cohesive narrative about values and morals. So I just, I'm trying to lay out this concept where, where I hope you can start to see that you, everyone is interpreting that story, that story or that narrative of values and morals based on the lens that they're bringing into that situation. So this is the one where if somebody had had, um, disengaged parents, for example, then they're going to hold a little bit of a different value. You know, maybe they're going to turn toward a value of, connection, you know, or a value of if they didn't feel like there was a lot of order in their life, they might have a value of order. You know, they might be a really strict rule follower. Or if they grew up in a very strict home, they might not value that order as much as they might value um, authenticity or they might value adventure or some of these things. So these are things that they're starting to develop. We're all starting to develop our own sense of self, sense of purpose, but we're still trying to weave that into this narrative of, you know, what I'm supposed to do or what I'm supposed to think or how I'm supposed to act. In, uh, in stage three on the chart, this James Fowler Stages of Faith chart that I love to refer to, he says stage three, synthetic and conventional. Most people move on to this stage as teenagers. At this point, their life has grown to include several different social circles, and there's a need to pull it all together. So when this happens, a person usually adopts some sort of all-encompassing belief system. However, at this stage, people tend to have a hard time seeing outside of their box and this is where I like to introduce that concept of a box, not in a negative way, but in a all-encompassing belief system. Inside of this box lie all the mysteries of the world, you know, from uh, from birth or pre-birth to death and afterlife, that all of that, all of all that you need to do is within this box, this all-encompassing belief system. So again, he says that at this stage, people have a hard time seeing outside of their box and they don't recognize that they are inside of a belief system. And at this stage, authority is usually placed in individuals or groups that represent one's beliefs. And P.S., this is the stage in which many people remain. So here is where I like to say that I start to run into people that, that start to bump into the sides of the box or they start to really peer outside of the box. So, and, and I've just hope, I'm trying to lay out this, uh, you see that from a very young age, there's this projected faith or these projected experiences 
but then you've got someone starting to, quote, come into their own and start to recognize what, what really feels right to them or who they are. If you want to put it in a religious context, um, if they, you know, they are a child of God, they all come to earth with a variety of talents and abilities and, and strengths and weaknesses. And so these are all starting to really be developed or starting to, to, to come out. They're starting to make sense or, or not even make sense to the person, this adolescent, this 13 to 18 year old. And they've tried to put things or fit things into this narrative that they have been, um, they've watched, they've witnessed from their parents, from those who are around them that they value, that are important to them. So if they start to feel like they don't quite fit in that box, or if they start to feel like they have experiences or values that are contrary to what fit in that box, they start to think, what's wrong with me? And that's where if I had a bell or a whistle or something, I would blow it right now, that when we start to get to the what's wrong with me voice in our heads, that's where I just want to start to say, okay, you know, I want you to start to look at what if nothing's wrong with you? You know, what if you're having all of those thoughts and feelings and emotions that you have because you're a human who is just trying to figure life out based on the experiences that you've been through? So even the idea of this box or this all-encompassing belief system it's a wonderful thing. I know that it is coming from a very good place, that we want order, we want direction, and we want guidance. And those who have gone on before us want to help us. They, you know, We want to say to our kids, I find myself doing this all the time, we want to say, hey, I would love to save you some of the grief and heartache that I've been through because now I understand why, why the things that I thought would work in life didn't work. But that is someone's they're having their own individual experience, just like I had the own individual experience that I had, just like I had my parents telling me that, you know, in, in essence, hey, get inside of this box, this stage three life box, you know, here are the keys to the universe, according to me. And, and so, you know, just just trust me on this. But meanwhile, we're all going through our own individual experiences. So we might not fit that neatly in that box. And that's why we may start to think, what's wrong with me? If we go back to a purely religious context, this is where oftentimes people go in and meet with a religious leader or religious authority, or it could be their parents. And, and the answer is often, you know, trust the process. Pray and read your scriptures more. You know, take a look at it. Try to find out what you're doing wrong, because here's the answer. It's in this stage three box. And so if that isn't working for you, you must be doing something wrong, or that's even the message that can be implied. And so, I just really want to bring some awareness to that stage three of faith, as well as that stage three of life. When we start to figure out, maybe I don't want to be the lawyer or the doctor, or maybe I don't want to go to college, you know, like I've always been told, but this is what you do. This is what we do. Or maybe I don't want to go to the college that my family says, this is where we go. So, we're starting to kind of say, all right, I don't know if I fit in this stage three life box that I have been told is the way that I'm supposed to feel or that I'm supposed to fit into. And so, that becomes a pretty um, important part in someone's development cycle. Because if they're doing the, man, what's wrong with me? You know, that I don't necessarily agree with things that my parents or my faith community are telling me that this is what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to feel. And let me just take a quick break and not for an advertisement, but to talk about psychological reactance. You know, this is a drum that I beat off and I talked about it in my online parenting course. There's an episode purely devoted to psychological reactance. And psychological reactance is the instant negative reaction we have of being told what to do. It is born, built in within all of us. If you want to look at it from a religious context, I believe that it, it could be the, this concept of agency or free will, 
that we have the psychological reactants built in us to protect us from being dominated by an alpha male or a, or an unhealthy society. That we have this natural inkling to kind of say, ah, I don't want to do that. Even if it's something that we know is, is good for us. I've had clients sit on my couch and say, I stayed in relationships much longer than I should have because people were telling me that's a bad relationship. You know, you need to get out. So even our own psychological reactants is saying, no, I don't. I don't have to get out. I don't have to do anything that you tell me to. We even do psychological reactants in our own brains. Look at when you tell yourself not to think of a certain thought. The old don't think about a pink elephant right now. Well, your brain is literally going, I can think about anything I want. Check it out. Pink elephant. Here's two pink elephants. There's three pink elephants. They're dancing around. And so we, that psychological reactance is very key. So when people are starting to, to do this, what's wrong with me story in their brain, because they feel like they don't necessarily fit in this, this stage three box, whether it's a religious box or whether it's a life box, whether it's the expectations that people have put upon them, that's where they start to have this reactance. When people are telling them, you just need to do this, they have built in wiring, you know, this, this wiring in the brain that says, I don't have to do that. And, and again, how do we, how do we, talk to somebody in that, uh, in that sense, they just want to be heard. You know, this is where we need to practice our empathy skills. You know, hey, what do you want to do with your life? Or what are the challenges that you're having with your faith community right now? Or tell me what it is that, you know, tell me how Sunday school was today. Hey, what are the things that you, you, you feel are a challenge? Or what are the things that you struggle with? Um, let me get very real. You know, I do a lot of work in the, in the LDS uh, culture, the, the Mormon culture, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints culture. And there are a lot of uh, the lessons, which I know are coming from a good place for the young men that are saying, here's all these ways to prepare for a mission. And I know that those are meant well. But if, let's just say that the teenage boy is not interested in going on a mission, the, you just need, you know, you just need to pray and read your scriptures more, or, you know, well, well, obviously you, you want to do this because you've heard about this your whole life, you know, is the message that's being conveyed. So that, that teenage boy will often think, what's wrong with me if I don't feel that way, or if I don't want to do that. So then they may go to church every Sunday and they're a, a well-meaning parent is saying, Hey champ, you know, just, just go like, don't, don't worry about all the stuff that's saying that, you know, you, you have to go on a mission. You know, don't worry about that stuff. Just just be there so you can have a spiritual experience. But that, bless the parent's heart, but that is, that's not necessarily hearing that teenage boy. That teenage boy, if we really say, hey, tell me what's going on, tell me what that's like for you, may open up and tell us. And I've heard this one so many times that, hey, every time I'm hearing these things, every time I'm even, maybe even if I get bold and express that I don't know if I want to go on a mission, they're being told, well, yeah, you do. I, I mean, I went on one, I'm, I'm saying the, what the teacher might say. And so therefore you must go on one too, you know, or, and so the, the, the teenager doesn't necessarily feel heard. And so at that point, they've even got this psychological reactance of like, no, I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to go. I don't want to hear what you have to say about it. So there's so many things that happen in this stage three box. And I feel like, again, whether you're looking at faith or whether you're looking at life, this is a very important developmental cycle, this stage three of life, stage three of faith where people are, and, and for some people, they fit very neatly and tidily in that box. And that mission or that belief or that pray and read my scriptures more works for them. And that is wonderful. But for the people that don't, they need to be heard. Because what happens next, and I think this is what happens again, whether we're talking about faith or life, is that Fowler calls it stage four, individuative, individuative and reflective faith. He says that this stage usually starts in late adolescence, maybe 18 to 22 years old. Um, he goes on to say, however, Rob, Robert Keeley points out that people of many generations experience the kind of dissonance that comes with the real questions of faith 
that one begins to address at this stage of development. People in this stage start to question their own assumptions around their faith tradition. Along with questioning their own assumptions about their faith, people at this stage start to question the authority structures of their faith. And this is often the time that someone will leave their religious community if the answers to the questions they're asking are not to their liking. And, and greater maturity, he says, is gained by rejecting some parts of their faith while affirming other parts. In the end, the person starts to take greater ownership of their own faith journey. And so, uh, if I look at the, the chart that I read off of in stage four, it's called, again, Individuative and Reflective. I like how uh, this chart says, this is a tough stage, often begun in young adulthood, when people start seeing outside of the box and recognizing that there are other boxes. They begin to critically examine their beliefs on their own, and they often become disillusioned with their former faith. And here's the kicker. Ironically, the stage three people usually think that stage four people have become backsliders, when in reality, the stage four people feel like they've actually moved forward. So, this is such a tough stage. So, people in that stage four are often, and I like how um, Fowler says that they, they're questioning their, their own assumptions about their faith, and they may start to question even the authority structures of their faith. So, I hope that I've done a decent job of laying out the, the answer is not to tell them, don't worry about it, don't think about it, or how dare you ask those questions. That doesn't satisfy, you know, that you've got, you're, you're, you're bumping into their own psychological reactants, and now you're bumping into their own private experiences that have brought them to that moment in life. Again, their nature, nurture, birth order, DNA, abandonment, rejection, all of those things that come into play are, are what lead them to feel the way they feel, to have the different values that they might have. So, simply telling them, don't worry about it, or you shouldn't be thinking that, or you shouldn't be looking there, or you shouldn't be reading that, that's not going to cause somebody to go, huh, okay, I won't then. You know, because if somebody's got to that point, if somebody's got to stage four, individu individuative and reflective faith, it's because they bumped around in that stage three box for such a long time. And they've gotten to this point where they feel like, what's wrong with me? And we don't want to feel like what's wrong with us. We want to figure out what, what we can do to move forward in our life. So, but then a lot of times we go into this black or white thinking or all or nothing. And that's why I love that Fowler says greater maturity is gained by rejecting some parts of the faith while affirming other parts. In the end, the person starts to take greater ownership of their own faith journey because they need to own it. They need to believe it. They need to buy into it if they're really going to be able to live by it. Because if they're doing this for someone else, now we get into this world of what ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy calls socially compliant goals. If somebody is doing something because they feel like they're supposed to or they should or they have to, but it isn't something that really speaks to them or, or ties into their values, it's called a socially compliant goal. And the motivation for keeping socially compliant goals is weak and ineffective because it goes against the sense, their sense of who they are or the sense of what is important to them or what they believe. And the answer is not to tell them, don't believe it, don't think that or don't worry about it. Because again, we've got the psychological reactance built in. We feel like no one wants to hear us, that we don't matter. And, and so, all of this starts to come into play. So, stage four in life or stage four in faith, either one of those is starting to say, I've, I've tried to be this person that I've been told I'm supposed to be and I, I can't or I don't like it or it doesn't, it doesn't resonate or feel good with me. And I've tried. I've stayed in that stage three box and I've bounced around and hit the edges and dented the sides and tried to look over it. And I even feel worse because I know there are people that, that seem like they're pretty comfortable in stage three. And you know what? Bless their hearts. They have a, a, a unique value experience that, that allows them to be very happy and very content in stage three. But if one is not feeling happy and content in stage three, that's okay. 
they're human beings that have all of their life experiences that bring them to this stage four. The thing that I get in my office a lot are people that are coming in angry in a stage four faith or in a stage four life that they're, they're so angry. And the reason that anger can explode is because that can often feel like the only way to be heard that they've tried to, and maybe in this stage three of life or stage three of faith, express themselves or have, and are asked questions or want their questions to be answered. And they've just continually be told, don't think that, don't worry about it. Don't ask that until finally, I hope you can kind of see where I'm headed from a psychological standpoint. Um, sometimes people anger or frustration or, or any of those things, or even withdraw or silence. These are all ways to try to be heard because trying to just simply ask questions and be heard when that doesn't work, you know, at some point it's going to make its way out. And that is what often leads to a very aggressive or angry stage five of life or stage five of faith or stage four of life or stage four of faith. Um, I'm jumping ahead of myself because stage five is where the, the magic happens. So stage five, this is sometimes I feel like this is my, my hope, my dream, my goal to get people to stage five in faith or stage five in life. It's called conjunctive faith. And, uh, and Fowler says, and again, his work was done in the eighties and nineties. So I, I feel like, well, I'll speak to that in a second. He says, people did not usually get to this stage until their early 30s. This stage is when the struggles and questioning of stage four give way to a more comfortable place. That is a beautiful line. When the struggles and questioning of stage four give way to a more comfortable place, some answers have been found, and the person at this stage is comfortable knowing that all the answers might not easily be found. In this stage, the strong need for individual self-reflection gives way to a sense of the importance of community in faith development. Um, because people have been through the, the rough patches. They've bounced around inside of stage three. They've been in stage four and haven't necessarily liked that as well. So they move into stage five, and it is about individual self-reflection, moving into this sense of importance of community in the faith development, or finding other people. We want this sense of attachment and community. It's built within us. It's innate. So people at this stage are also much more open to other people's faith perspectives. And this is not because they necessarily are moving away from their faith, but because they have their own realization that other people's faiths might inform and deepen their own, that this becomes shared experiences. Um, Fowler says in stage five or conjunctive faith, he says it's rare for people to reach the stage before midlife, but this is the point when people begin to realize the limits of logic and start to accept the paradoxes in life. They begin to see life as a mystery and often return to sacred stories and symbols, but this time without being stuck in a theological box. One of the most difficult things is that someone that is very comfortable in a stage three faith or a stage three life is going to look at someone in stage five and say, you can't do that. You can't just pick and choose. You know, you, you have to come back and do this the way that I'm, I'm telling you that it works. And stage four is saying, I can't do this anymore. Stage five is saying, with empathy, with compassion, with Christ-like love is saying, bless your heart, stage three person. I, I'm so grateful that works for you. But I, I spent a lot of time in that box feeling bad, you know, feeling like, a, like I didn't even want to be on this planet. You know, those sort of things are the stories that I hear. And so, getting to stage five and feeling more, much more empathy and understanding and concern and Christ-like love, what a wonderful feeling that is. And I feel like this is one of those, you don't know what you don't know. Someone in stage three doesn't even know they're in stage three because they're, they're living life. It works for them. Maybe their unique set of values makes it possible for them to live comfortably in this stage three of life or stage three of faith. You know, this is the person that, hey, I worked for a large company for 35 years and it worked for me. You should do it too. But if somebody's tried to work at a large company for 10 years, 15 years, and they feel like they want to go, um, you know, uh, I don't know, they want to go fall off a cliff or, or something like that, 
then hey, that one's not working for them. So then at stage five, it's going to be more of an authentic self, more of a bless your heart, those who are giving me advice, because they haven't been where I've been. They don't know the experiences that I've had. Again, whether, whether it's with life, whether it's with faith, you know, personally, I did 10 years in computer software. I made okay money. I got to travel the world and I was kind of thinking, well, I guess this is what you do. But man, I was not happy. And people around me were saying, this is what you do. This is life. You, you stay in there. You aren't necessarily happy. You, you increase your paycheck. You pour into your 401k and, and you try to find fun times on the weekends. And I couldn't. For me personally, I couldn't based on my sets of values and my life experiences. And that's what led me to kind of start to make a career shift in my early 30s. Here I am, a 50-year-old man, not wearing a belt, but I'm, I've never been happier because that worked for me. And so when somebody's telling me, you know, that, that yeah, well, you should have stayed in this company or you would have done this or you'd be further along if you would have stayed at one place, bless their hearts. I love them, but that's not been my experience. And so that's a, more of a stage five life. That's more of a stage five faith. And, and so that one is devoid of the what's wrong with me story. It's more of the, man, I've been through a lot of crap and I'm so glad to be here in stage five. I still have um, the doubts, the fears, the worries, because I'm human. We all do. But I know now to kind of just try to get back to being present and to know that I've had these experiences. I've had every now and again, will somebody say something from a stage three of life or stage three of faith uh, position that makes me go, huh, you know, what if I got it all wrong? I will tell you, that's, that's, I did, I used to feel a lot more of that. Now, bless their hearts. I've never felt more connected to my, my career, to my kids, to my wife, to my faith, to my God, than from a stage five standpoint. And that's why it is a beautiful place to be. It's an authentic place to be. Somebody can express their opinion about something that is different than mine, and, and I'm grateful to hear it. I don't feel it's an attack, even when somebody's trying to attack me. Um, I've been on a number of podcasts, uh, especially with the concept of pornography and helping people overcome pornography. I love it. I'll take the bait every now and again, and somebody will bring me on. I, I can think of one instance in particular where I felt like there was a 15-minute setup for then this big, dramatic moment where the person was like, you know, well, don't you think uh, you know porn, some, some pornography is good in a relationship? And it's like, my job's not to try to tell, no, you are an idiot, and here's all the data, and I've sat with a thousand couples, and, and you know, it, that is overlooking the possibility of having a greater connection. You know, I, no, it's like, hey, if that works for you, then I, I can understand. Let me share my thoughts with you. You know, let me share my data. Let me share my research or my opinions. But my job is not to break down your reality. Stage three of life person, even with regard to pornography, you know, coming from the stage five, it's like, it depends on what your goals are. You know, if your goal is this incredible connection with a partner and not turning to, you know, I don't know, pixels or kind of going more with people, then, hey, I can help. You know, it's it's not going to be an immediate or, um, you know, a, a, a black and white change at times. But uh, but that's my job is to sit from a stage five standpoint in life and say, boy, you know, if you're asking those questions, I can imagine that maybe there's some things that that are you're, you're struggling with in your life. Maybe you're hearing people talk about that something like pornography is bad and you've always wondered, well, is it though? Or, you know, I'm not, I don't really have a problem or whatever. Well, then great, good for you. But when you maybe have bumped in around in that box of stage three long enough and you get into that anger phase of stage four, let me help you get into stage five of life or of faith or of uh, your marriage or as a parent or any of those things. So um, I, I said I would talk about this. And I, I missed this one for a second. When he talked about in five, people don't usually get to the stage until their early 30s or in that chart that I read, it talks about midlife. I think that that's accelerating. I think that that was, you know, Fowler did, again, the majority of his research back in the 80s or 90s. And if you go back into purely a faith 
community or a faith experience again. Um, he was working from a people have had a lot of maybe a couple of decades or at least a decade or more in that stage three box. So even though they bounced around the sides or looked out of the top and had a lot of those what's wrong with me moments, they've also had some moments where they've had good experiences with their faith community. So when they move into stage five, then they have enough of those experiences to draw on that it's a little easier than to kind of say, hey, I think I'm okay. And here are some experiences I can return to my my uh, faith community without feeling stuck inside of this theological box. But I can return there and appreciate things that I really like about my faith community. And so, the the theory that Fowler was working with there was that you, you were having enough of those stage three positive experiences in stage three that when you get to stage five, you want to go back there. I think one of the problems with the, quote, kids these days is that as soon as there's a bit of a faith crisis or a life crisis, um, and this is not me again trying to sound like an old man saying get off my lawn, but when you can quickly turn to uh, to you know a, a quick Google search and then find a community of people that are maybe living in this stage four and just saying hey you know uh, you don't even get what the, you don't even know what you don't know yet and you know here's all this data that you don't know or that sort of thing um, it's really easy to kind of quickly jump from stage three and then just exit at stage four where sometimes the the happiness is found in the stage five. Um, I've talked about this on uh, Brandon. Patrick has a wonderful podcast called Ask Brandon Anything. And I talked about these stages of faith in a, in a relationship. And I highly recommend that episode. Go find that one. But I did talk about in that one. Um, I really believe if I had the, the time, the, the, the people that would be uh, open to doing this, I feel like a wonderful psychological experiment could be done using the principles of values from acceptance and commitment therapy and then applying them into these stages of faith. I'm very confident just from the work I've done for 15 years and thousands of people that I've worked with, especially through faith crisis or faith journey, that if you identified people's individual core values, that you would most likely land on a set of values that, that fit well into stage three. And that's why people are happy and they can stay in that stage three of faith or stage three of life. I feel like you'll even find that there's probably a unique set of values that will, um, that someone will kind of put them more in that stage four. And it, and that might be where they, they kind of exit or they reside based on their individual values. But I believe that the overwhelming majority of people that go through these challenges, if you really look at their core values, that there's a pretty large subset of values that would allow them to stay in stage five and be happy and feel authentic and have more of this empathy and Christ-like love and compassion for their fellow man. And it removes a lot of the anger, but allows them to still connect with the faith community or connect with family members that are saying, you know, from a stage three standpoint that are saying, hey, here's what you need to do. You know, stage five just has much more of a place of empathy. I said on uh, Brandon Patrick's um, interview that I do have, um, I'm, I'm finishing up a program to help people through these stages of faith whether it's with themselves or whether it's with the family member. And so I do encourage you to reach out to me. Send me an email if you're interested in learning more about um, these stages of faith or, or maybe a program to help with this, with either you, your spouse, your family member, communication around this, because I, I really want to help. This is something I get to deal with every day in my practice, multiple times a day, and there there is a lot of hope there. So stage six, we'll kind of wrap it up with uh, universalizing faith. Um, Fowler says it's rare for a person to reach this stage of faith. Fowler describes people at this stage as having a special grace that makes them seem more lucid, more simple, and yet somehow more fully human than the rest of us. He said people at this stage have become important religious teachers because they have the ability to relate to anyone at any stage and from any faith. They're able to relate without condescension, 
but at the same time are able to challenge the assumptions that those of other stage that other stages might have. He said people at this stage cherish life, but also do not hold on to life too tightly. They put their faith in action, challenging the status quo and working to create justice in the world. Robert Keeley points to people like Gandhi or Mother Teresa um, as examples of people who have reached this stage. So that's the one where I would say stage six, um, universalizing faith. Uh, people who reach this stage, those who do, few people reach this stage, those who do live their lives in full service of others without worries or doubts. And I, I echo what Keeley says, where I always say it's it's Jesus, it's Gandhi, it's Mother Teresa, it's Buddha, it's Confucius, it's, you know, all of these people that uh, that really just get to this place where they just, I love how Fowler says, cherish life, but don't hold on to it too tightly, and they put their faith in action. So, um, I, I hope this made sense today of trying to align the stages of life with these stages of faith, because I feel like that's significant, that just as people go through this uh, based on their stage one of life, stage two of life, or stage one of faith, stage two of faith, and then they hit that stage three, where now they're starting to try to make more sense of the world, but they realize or recognize that they are inside of a belief system or a box. And for some, that works, and that's okay. For others, they're struggling because of all of what has led up to that moment in that person's particular life. And so that person wants to be heard. They want to be valued. They, it, no one, it doesn't feel good. And I'm not saying that we just all are in this pursuit of feeling good, but the, the what's wrong with me story is not a place to start from. Um, I know I'm wrapping things up, but I almost every chance I get, I want to talk about this acceptance and commitment therapy model. And if you go on my website, uh, tonyoverbay.com, click on the link or podcast, and in the search bar, just type in acceptance and commitment therapy and do a deep dive on the podcast I've done on this. Because acceptance and commitment therapy starts with saying you're okay. So instead of maybe some of the older models that, that start with the, hey, your thoughts are automatically negative, and all you have to do is change them, Again, there's so much data, and I get to see that every day that says just trying to say, I need to be happy today. It's a great idea, but then inevitably or most likely, you're going to run into things that frustrate you or make you sad. And then all of a sudden, you're frustrated because you're thinking, man, I was just going to be happy. Or everybody on Instagram says that they're just choosing to be happy today. So what's wrong with me? And we got to get away from the what's wrong with me stories. Life happens. We all have these unique and, and difficult and interesting and fascinating and frustrating situations that occur in our lives that cause us to feel and emote and behave because we're human and because we're the only ones on the earth who are going through life with all the challenges and struggles and issues that we have. So, if we didn't feel or act or, or just react the way that we did, we wouldn't be human. So, start the ball game by saying, you're okay. That's the acceptance part. At that point, then, realize or recognize what your your individual values are. And that is a powerful experience that, that you will recognize some of the values that you felt you should have had or you should believe. And, and again, if there are things that don't really resonate with you, but you're saying, man, I, sh- I know I should think this, or I know I should believe this, or I know this should be easy, or I know I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't want to work as a mom or I, you know, or as a dad, I, I shouldn't want to uh, hang out with friends or you know, whatever those are. No, no, no. You, you have those thoughts, feelings, and emotions you have because of your private experiences because you're human. So start there. That's the acceptance. Figure out your values. And then the more that you work toward your values, remember, your brain wants path of least resistance. So it is going to throw up the, yeah, but what if? Or this might not work. Or And again, bless your brain's squishy pink heart. 
um, it, it thinks it's going to protect you by keeping you away from the unknown, from, from what it feels could be scary situations. But there are amazing tools to be able to defuse from those stories your brain's trying to tell you because your brain's scared. Your brain thinks that you're going to go off and do something crazy and kill it. Your brain wants to live forever. It's a don't get killed device. But I digress. Um, find the acceptance and commitment therapy podcast because that part of that acceptance is really helping you move into just this stage of life where you feel more authentic. And as an, and when you feel more authentic, you're going to be more productive and you're going to be much more uh, of, uh, of an asset to people, to society, to yourself, to your family. And that, I mean, man, you only got one life, I guess, depending on what you believe, maybe half a dozen, half a dozen of them. But I'm kind of working with the one that I have to work with now. And it is never too late to kind of put yourself on a better trajectory to feel more authentic. And that is just liberating. It feels amazing. And that is my hope that you will find that, uh, that, that path, that tract of life. And uh, I will stop now. I am going into cliche mode. A huge thanks to the wonderful, the talented Aurora Florence for this song that is so applicable right this second that it's wonderful. All right. I will see you next time on The Virtual Couch. Emotions flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind is wonderful. Elastic waist and rubber ghost are floating past the midnight hour. They push aside the things that matter most. Yours to take all